Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It says Percy had been in the middle of a school of sharks when the water was full of blood. That wasn't nearly as scary as Mpusai ready to feed. And I was like, when was that? You know. And the only thing I could think of was when he accidentally dumped his entire school field trip into the shark tank. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a 10 year old and i was like was that trip just like way more dramatic than we thought it was i don't know maybe he goes cage diving on the weekends we don't know his life hey everyone welcome to monster donut a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Emily, your favorite classic scholar-ish. And I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And it's House of Hades time. <laughs> is this your favorite? No, Son of Neptune is still my favorite, but okay. House of Hades is the one I'm most excited to talk about. <laughs> I have more yeah. to say about House of Hades, despite Son of Neptune being my favorite. House of Hades... I, I think it has to be my favorite in the new series. I mean, Blood of Olympus is still a dark horse in the running, but... <laughs> it's so fun returning to this book because I haven't really reread it since it actually came out. And when it came out, it was such a moment because we'd been sitting there 
uh-huh. with that cliffhanger for like a year and just theorizing and there was even a couple days before like maybe a week before it was leaked in portuguese or at least scenes from it were leaked in portuguese yeah. and so the fandom was like scrambling to learn portuguese and to translate and debating over like which translation was correct of a couple of these scenes and then i got the book a couple days early because it was put out on bookshelves at my campus bookstore like three days before the book actually came out and so i was like Mm -hmm. reading the book as fast as i could to try and figure out whether the leaks were real or not but also i'm a a pretty slow reader (laughs) so it was just like pure chaos so it's interesting to read it in a more uh, calm setting. <laughs> but before we get into House of Hades, we're about to finish the Heroes of Olympus series. So we're going to be having a wrap-up episode at the end like we had for the Percy Jackson series. So if you have a question that you'd like us to respond to or your own analysis that you'd like to add to the conversation, you can send those to us at monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com or send us anything on our social media which is all at pjopod on twitter instagram and tiktok and i feel like you know obviously we're going to prioritize talking about the heroes of olympus series but if there are things that you want to contribute from the original series i feel like you can send that too it's all part of the same story we'll still talk about it okay so our first major encounter in this book sets the vibe for the whole book which i love which is hazel meeting hikati in the mountains Mm -hmm. My main thoughts when I got to this scene were basically just me trying to remember what happened in The Son of Magic. Right? Because her depiction here is so different from the one in Son of Magic, which is understandable because she's written by someone else. The thing for me was like looking back at Son of Magic and remembering the way that she seemed happy to sort of let her children find their own way for the most part and like stepped in at the very end, but wanted them to find like balance and peace and all of that so i was curious what made her take action now yeah i also liked that she was again surrounded by ruins though that felt like mm-hmm. the main like continuity thing here was yeah. that, again she was back in the ruins i felt like there was a bit of a parallel here uh because she actually brings up janus in this scene and that reminded me also of this scene in battle of the labyrinth very early on where annabeth is kind of presented with this harried like you have to choose one way or the other one way or the other yeah And there was also in Battle of the Labyrinth, there was the fact that we weren't let in on what the choice was supposed to be. It was just make the choice, make the choice, which kind of led into the the very confusing nature of the labyrinth. (laughs) While here we get exactly here are the choices that you have and here are the consequences of each choice. Think it through and make your decision. And the other thing I think that really sets the tone is all the stuff about the mist, which I found really interesting because I always love getting more information on how all this world building works. Mm. And um, another piece of information that's part of that that I thought was kind of cool too is that Hikati mentions that Hazel's mother, despite being mortal, was actually able to use magic, which actually got me to thinking about a point that we didn't really get to talk about in our Lost Hero episode, but that I um, did make a note on was that Medea was also mortal and also able to become a sorceress despite not having any magic powers or godly par- given from like some kind of godly parent because i was wondering with medea she mentions being able to see through the mist and hazel's mother also i think probably was engaging in some kind of something i would imagine with future telling just like you know as part of what she did in new orleans 
then I also was thinking about Rachel, who is mortal, who sees through the mist as well, and how they kind of are able to acquire magic powers through that. And I like the idea that you don't have to be like of a special parentage to necessarily be able to be part of this world um, or to like have power. But I feel like I've been flagging a lot over the course of this entire podcasting journey, all the times, the boundaries between mortals, demigods, and monsters, specifically though, demigods and monsters have been broken. And I think this book. It's like all the cracks, all the cracks, all the cracks, and then it's finally, like, shattered in this book. Mm. That wasn't a certain mm. <laughs> It was a, I'll be curious to hear more about that. Mm. Yeah. Great. Um, we find out that they're heading to a temple in Epirus called the House of Hades. I will say something else in the beginning that I thought was interesting was... Like, this is, you know, post, you know, Percy and Annabeth falling into Tartarus. And there's a lot of, like, observations made by Hazel about, like, the void this is kind of left in the group. Yeah, she says that Percy is the backbone or was the backbone of this quest Mm -hmm. when he definitely wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) I just enjoyed the fact that Hazel clearly thinks of Percy as the backbone of the quest. You know, she means it for herself and probably for Frank also that Percy was the backbone of this quest. But for, like... Piper, <laughs> Jason, yeah. Leo, like they are 100% not thinking of Percy as the backbone of this quest. Yeah, I think Piper might be the backbone of this quest. It seems like she's always the one getting them out of the sticky situations. She's always the one like, you know, yelling at them and charm speaking them to like get their asses in gear. I don't know. I think if I were actually to choose a like center, it might be Frank because I think, I mean, he's obviously already close with Hazel and. Percy. And then I think out of all of them, he's done the best job of actually connecting with the other people on board. <laughs> yeah. This is true. He's, he connects with Annabeth. He connected with Annabeth. He's developed a close enough relationship with Leo, especially by the end of this book. I think the only one he hasn't had like a real connection with yet is Piper. But of all of them, I think he's doing the best job. <laughs> yeah. I would say he's definitely the heart. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which is different from the backbone. The backbone is... <laughs> yeah, well, they're different body parts. We learned that from uh, Tartarus. The first thing they see is actually the backbone of Tartarus, and then at the mm. end, they have to make their way to the heart. So. Oh, did you keep track of, you know, the body parts? No, I just memorized it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe what we need to do is assign each member of the seven to a different Tartarus body part. <laughs> oh, my God. You know what? Make a you quiz. I, I really want to know. <laughs> Which Tartarus body part are you? Yeah. okay shall we move on from this scene yeah please let's fall into tartarus (laughs) my first note is that annabeth was thinking of hesiod while she fell into into tartarus same from when you fell into tartarus yeah that's what you were thinking about Mm -hmm. yeah this chapter is such an iconic chapter to me but i think that might just be because we spent a year theorizing about what was going to happen on the way Mm. down into tartarus and people were bringing up this fact like, people were trying to guess what the fall into Tartarus was going to be like, and people were bringing up the nine days fact. Hmm. Okay, wait, hold on. I need to know, what were the theories? Were there any good ones? Like, give us a snapshot of the fandom at this moment, Phoebe. <laughs> I wasn't there. You were. I remember at least I offered a theory based entirely on, I think I had some stuff from the Aeneid in there. I think I had, <laughs> like, I... <laughs> Wait, when do they go to Tartarus in the Aeneid? Virgil would never. I don't. I think there's just like mentions of what Tartarus is in the Aeneid. But I had a theory that they were going to visit like there's this castle that's mentioned or a palace or something. I had a lot of theories about the rivers. 
it was just it was a lot of people doing a lot of research that was mostly wrong <laughs> yeah there's just not that much about tartarus in mythology is the thing like i was trying to do some research on this and the references um to all of this are very scant there's not a lot of like detailed descriptions so yeah which is why in this book we end up pulling from like dante's inferno um so we fall into tartarus and directly into which river the cockatus yeah a few a few striking things about this moment also number one the cost the cockatus affects percy and annabeth actually has to pull him out of a river and he's dripping wet when he gets out yeah it seems to affect him much more than it really affects Annabeth, and she's clearly affected by it. Yeah. I feel like in the last book, we've started on this weird arc in Percy's relationship with water, where he's kind of, like, afraid of it. Because I think in our, um, like, long ago, I think in our, like, Battle of the Labyrinth episode, I sort of put forth this theory I had that he was able to be so powerful in that book because he was able to kind of he was able to let go of this idea that his father Poseidon was like this human and was like the sea. And that was what allowed him to like do what he did in that book and like have like God tier powers basically. But um, as soon as he falls into the cockatus, after he's already gone through all of this time where he's sort of had his faith in a way and his own abilities shaken, he now seems to have less of a handle on them in terms mm -hmm. of like being able to essentially just water bend any liquid. Yeah. It's like all of the anxiety that comes with being in the water now combined with like what the river is telling him. It's confirming all of the thoughts that are already in his head when he ends up in the water. And mm -hmm. so it makes sense that it's dragging him down further than Annabeth. Mm -hmm. I just want to mention that the first time I read this and the second time I found Annabeth like grieving her knife to be really striking. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to think I was sitting and thinking about what that means in terms of her and her character. Yeah, no, because she doesn't just lose the the dagger; she loses the laptop too. Which, yeah, like, for a long time, those were I, the iconic Annabeth belongings. <laughs> if if you were drawing Annabeth, she had one or the other. <laughs> yeah, I, in a way, she's also kind of losing Percy. Not because he doesn't care about her as much, but just because this man is showing some new dimensions to himself. <laughs> she's losing. She thought that she understood Percy completely, and mm -hmm. I feel like in this book she's realizing that there's a whole other side to him that she doesn't know yet, which is also a theme that I am going to talk about at some point, is the uh, the realization that these people that you love are not who you think you they are, mm. or are going through something internally that you don't understand. That comes up a couple times in this book. I feel like all of her tools have been taken in a way. I feel like a lot of what Tartarus ends up doing is just like stripping you down to the simplest version of yourself <laughs> whatever is at the core of you it does strip annabeth down to like only her intellect and her instincts and it's the same thing with percy mm. and i also feel like it would be interesting to look at the way that they are while in tartarus and think of that as like the purest form of who they are mm. we also get the kickoff of what i refer to as the soulless percy arc <laughs> Right, so they <laughs> they realize that Arachne is down there, mm -hmm. and she ends up trying to surprise attack them, but Percy sees her just in time and, and kills her, and he moves so fast that Annabeth is, like, shocked. Like, yeah. she can't believe that he moved that fast. And then after killing her, he says, <laughs> she died too easy, <laughs> and that she deserved worse. I love Percy's villain era. 
<laughs> this book is great for that if that's what you're into. <laughs> this if, Okay, I'll get that was like a joke, but that's actually my big point about Percy in a nutshell. Oh yeah. Um, no, I, yep. <laughs> my my question here is, does this come out of nowhere for you or do we see like the ramp up to this in Mark of Athena? Well, I think this is both its own separate arc just in this book. I think that Percy is about to go on a, on a journey. But I don't know, this specific instance it's like vengeful Percy. Like, he's always been angry. Right. But he seems pretty chill in Heroes of Olympus, for the most part. Like, the only time we really see him go off is at Juno, at the end mm-hmm. of Son of Neptune. In my head, all of this is part of a larger arc for Percy, which is him taking all of that anger and starting to direct it somewhere. Because it, he's kind of, he's been angry his whole life, but hasn't really, like, targeted it he does in moments to like control his own powers or you know he feels it bubble over when at certain at certain points but i think over the course of this series it's him starting to take hold of the anger and figure out where it's supposed to be aimed Mm. which it's debatable where he ends up aiming it by the end personally i think it's at the gods But back when this book came out, there was a lot of arguments about whether this was out of character for Percy or not and what was going on with him in this book. Um, And a lot of people settled on it just being like a survival instinct kind of thing, which I don't fully agree with. I think it's just a part of him that's always there. Mm. Well, there's a moment where Percy, I think, in his head realizes that what they're seeing of Tartarus is like only what their like minds are able to comprehend. And then there's a moment when the veil kind of slips and Percy sees it and it's way more horrifying. So I wonder if maybe there's something about Percy being able, is he sort of being impacted by it in a way he's not fully realizing of like how bad a place he's in? Yeah. Question mark? No, this is a conversation that we will have throughout this episode because Percy yeah. does a lot worse things than this. Yeah, <laughs> so. this is true. But again, this is why I called it the soulless Percy era. Because you spend the, the whole book going, why'd he do that? <laughs> yeah, it just reminds me a lot of that like arc and supernatural of soulless Sam, where like at first you're like, oh, that's a little odd. And then like more and more you're like, this man, there's something wrong with him. Anyway, now we can talk about the Caracopes. Cool. You can talk about them because I have nothing. There's not much to say about these guys. I feel like all of the like non-god encounters in this book or non um non-location based encounters in this book, that might be a better way to put it. I was starting to notice because I again this will come up in a little bit when I start talking more about like what I thought about um the sort of major themes of this book. But it didn't strike me that in this one almost all of them had been mortal at some point. Um, like the Kerkopes were originally these men that were thieves and they um, ended up annoying Hercules, but Hercules like enjoyed their company so much that they just kind of became good friends. And then they were eventually turned into monkeys as sort of like a punishment for their thievery. And now they're kind of immortal. Likewise, a little bit later on, um, we've got Skiron, um, again, another immortal who's been turned immortal and so on and so forth. So I'm just going to leave that there. Um, cool. Back to Percy. (laughs) Back to Percy. That's gonna be a lot of what this episode is, is me being like, anyway, they do something up there. So I think uh, at this point, they are currently following the Impusai. Yeah. Because they think that they are on their way to the Doors of Death, which is where these guys are trying to get. Yeah. 
And as they're walking, we get an interesting glimpse at how Percy thinks of fate at this point. Hmm. Because while he's t thinking about Annabeth, it says, he didn't think much of fates and prophecies, but he did believe in one thing. Annabeth and he were supposed to be together. Which I thought was a, a bold statement. He didn't think much of fates and prophecies. Yeah. And I maybe this is proof that Percy thinks of this the way that I do. <laughs> like, it, the, the last five years were supposedly governed by fate and prophecies, but he has watched the way that prophecies come true. And like he also watched the fates literally determine his fate yeah. only after like he's experienced that. And so he might be looking at it the way that I do, which is that like the prophecy will find a way to come true, but that none of it is necessarily fated. It's just that like what is said in the prophecy will happen to someone, be it Thalia or Percy or Nico or someone else. And so he might just not think much of fates and prophecies because it's like they will come true but not necessarily to you and not necessarily in the way that anyone thinks it's going to. And so it's like, he's not going to put much into the idea of like something being faded or prophesied, but he does think that he and Annabeth are faded, which is interesting because he hates prophecy and fates, but is somehow comforted by imagining that this one thing isn't in his hands that it's something that like for, is in the hands of the gods which you'd think he would never want but he finds comfort in the idea of like there being some kind of inevitability only there <laughs> it's like almost hypocritical of him but like not quite because it's like <laughs> it's hypocritical that he's like yeah i do want my relationship with annabeth in the hands of the gods that sounds cool. <laughs> that sounds fine with me. But I think it is the idea of it being inevitable and something that's like unchangeable. Mm. Even though he knows that the fates and prophecies are clearly very changeable. So it doesn't. It's <laughs> this might also connect, though, to I feel like we keep seeing people choosing fates, though. And I wonder if that's where he finds confidence in it, where he's like, I have no idea what's going on with anything, but I know, like, I choose Annabeth. Like, basically, I believe in her. This is the part of a world that's governed by fate that I'm willing to accept. I don't know. There, there's something about, like, I think there's a little bit of control in that in a way. But they're about to be overwhelmed by the Impusai, which is really bad. And out of nowhere comes Bob the Titan to save the day. And we find out Bob has been made a janitor by Hades. And he's got a broom with a sphere in it. And uh, he's come to help them on their quest into Tartarus. Yep. Cliffhanger. Here comes the Frank chapter. <laughs> um, we got an interesting detail where Frank seems to have a buffer um, to a lot of the like demigod stuff, like the having dreams, as well as we find out he's got this, uh, he's have a splitting headache because the two aspects of Mars and Aries are like warring in his head. And he's actually able to kind of get away from that by shape-shifting. And so he sleeps shape-shifted. Yeah, we find out that Ares and Mars have been screaming in his head since Mark of Athena, too. And we didn't know this. Like, through all of Mark of Athena, this yeah. was happening to Frank, and we didn't know. That's, I feel like, one of the more minor versions of, like, something going on with the people that you love and you don't realize it. Like, the fact that we went through an entire book and Frank has been dealing with this the entire time yeah. and we had no idea. He's yeah. so strong. Although he's also terrified of Nico. Which is funny because in Son of Neptune, Hazel says that Nico finds Frank endearing. Like he actually likes being around Frank. Yeah. 
Well, I feel like no one can get a read on Nico. Yeah, that's repeated many times in this book. The fact that people are like, I have no idea what's he going on. He must be terrifying. <laughs> the curse of being a quiet person who sits in the corner and doesn't say anything. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Couldn't be me, but I do know somebody who uh, <laughs> is a little like that. I just, I understand him <laughs> on like such a... <laughs> You're not shy. You just, like, don't say anything unless you, like, have something to say. There's a difference. But as soon as I start asking you questions about Percy Jackson or uh, Danny Phantom... Mm -hmm. Someone just just needs to start talking to Nico about Myth of Magic again. Maybe not not Myth of Magic, but, like, I don't know. Well, well, does he have a new hyperfixation? He's been through a lot. He's a hyperfixation shadow shovel right now. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So, uh... They land in Venice. They recovered in Bologna this uh, book. Then they were told that it was the property of a uh, minor god. And so they end up tracking this guy down. And it turns out his, he's a minor god, Triptolemus, uh, who's the god of agriculture. Interesting dude. Um, he actually gives a little bit of his backstory, too, which is that when Persephone was kidnapped by Hades, he let Demeter stay with him while she searched for her daughter. And as, like, a thank you, she made him a minor god of agriculture. He also tells an interesting story about how he tried to bring farming to a Scythian king and um, got a, one of his snakes killed, which I thought was funny. Because the Scythians were a uh, nomadic horse tribe people in the Eurasian steppes, so they, I actually shouldn't say, I don't know if they farmed or not, but they're nomadic people, so not as, like, into farming. Mm. Um, So I was like, wow, Rick, funny joke that only I get. (laughs) Anyway, basically, they give him back his book, and he he also apparently holds the key to uh, them getting through um, the House of Hades, but he refuses to give it to them. And also, Hazel has been poisoned, and he's the only one who has... Right, right. So Frank needs to save Hazel's life and also get the help them get through the House of Hades. And he volunteers to go out and replace the snake that was killed by the Scythians on Triptolemus's chariot because he hasn't been able to go around and spread the good news about agriculture. (laughs) Yeah. So he leads these, um, what are they actually called? I just called them cows. Catableps. Catableps. (laughs) He leads them through Venice, um, makes his way luring them in until every one of these cows that have like infest infested venice are following him and he leads them onto a bridge and then kills every single one (laughs) by the way was i the only one that got like anakin skywalker vibes from this (laughs) you know what i'm talking about with the sand people am Mm. i the only one okay yeah sure to me it was very reminiscent of percy's first battle when he got the curse of achilles when he's like Mm. fighting his way through all of the monsters and he says that he he laughs a couple times while he's like cutting them all down because it's just it's so easy where but where percy laughs in that same situation frank says that he doesn't feel any pleasure in this Mm. he doesn't hesitate but at the end of it it says that he feels terror and he feels like sobbing and it's just like the carnage that he causes is just so upsetting to him yeah but at the end of all of it the anger and everything that he felt in that moment he says is still there but this is a big moment for frank frank says that he feels like he's been changed forever by what happened here um which was also an impactful line to me because I was thinking of this in relation to, like, as almost a parallel to what Percy did back in The Last Olympian, and that was something that Percy did with ease, but for Frank, this is, like, a real 
moment. Yeah. I think also when he gets back, I, I wrote down that he pulls a Percy. Because he gets back and Triptolemus still doesn't want to help. And he threatens him and scares a god. Yep. Total Percy Jackson move. Been learning from the best, I guess. <laughs> I think it's that, like, we've been talking, or at least I've been talking, <laughs> about <laughs> the similarities between Percy and the Ares kids. Yeah. And so I think it's not just, like, Frank being like Percy. It's just, like, that Ares kid mentality that Percy happens to share. Hmm. All right, now back to Percy. Um. <laughs> so uh, Bob is back. We're in Annabeth's perspective. Bob is back. We get these moments where Bob exhibits this like instinctive memory, like what we've seen Percy and Jason do in The Lost Hero and Son of Neptune. Mm-hmm. You know I love parallels. Um, <laughs> and here we're getting a Titan who is in the exact same situation that Percy and Jason were in at the beginning of the series. And we actually get to explore that from an outside perspective. And not only that, we get to explore it from the perspective of Percy, who is the Juno in this situation. Yeah. He did this. He, I don't know, shall we say, played God a little bit? Sure, you could say that. Played Bob a little no. bit? No. <laughs> um, but he's, he tells them that he, can, he knows where they can be safe. He ends up leading them to a shrine to Hermes in Tartarus. One thing I wanted to know about this is that for the first time, we get to be in Annabeth's head while she's making very quick judgments of people mm. because we've seen her make quick judgments of like Rachel and Tyson and like just immediately being very mean to people. <laughs> mm. um, and she does the same thing to Bob, but we get to actually be in her head and see her analyze what could go wrong here and like decide that being wary of him and a little bit mean to him is the best decision logically. Getting to see the way that her mind works when she ends up doing that because like I feel like the logic that she uses here is probably very similar to the logic she used when she made that judgment of Tyson. Definitely not the same logic she used when she uh, met Rachel. (laughs) But yeah, we end up at the Hermes Shrine, one of the only safe spaces in Tartarus. Annabeth falls asleep here. She has a dream. Mm. with luke in it luke comes up a lot in the first half of this book he does um and we get to see annabeth dream of leaving thalia behind on Mm. the hill back when thalia died and we learned that uh annabeth hurt her ankle and then luke carried her across the the border into camp can't imagine you know why she'd be thinking about that yeah when she also just hurt her ankle and got carried into another world again i also think that this might be foreshadowing for the fact that they're gonna leave behind bob at the end so i really liked this dream it's interesting as well because we never get to see that moment i think this is the only time we get to see it yeah this is the first time that we've gotten to see that and it's such a like staple of the series but Mm -hmm. somehow this is the first time that we're actually getting to see it play out yeah I wonder what would happen if you took all of the flashbacks and dreams and everything in this entire series and put everything in chronological order so you could read all of it in order. (laughs) If only we knew somebody who had a podcast uh, where they overanalyze things. (laughs) That's what we'll do next is that we'll read everything, like the entire series where every line is in chronological order. (laughs) Oh my god. We're about to run into Hyperion. Yeah. Um, I love this scene. I've referenced it several times in this podcast already. (laughs) (laughs) We finally made it. So there are these blisters that are growing all over the 
ground mm-hmm. in Tartarus. And inside the blisters are monsters and titans and giants uh, who are slowly reforming after being killed. Mm-hmm. And so they end up running into one in which uh, Hyperion is starting to reform. Hyperion is the sun fire titan that we killed in the last olympian mm-hmm. and so i what happens here is annabeth realizes that bob looking at hyperion recognizes him because he has the exact same face because they're brothers and her instinct here is like we need to get out of here we can't let bob remember who he is but what percy does is use the fact that bob is starting to remember to manipulate him into killing his own brother and annabeth this is not sit well with annabeth but she doesn't stop it Mm. she does kind of try to stop it at a certain point she starts to realize that bob is putting it together and is like Mm. what we need to get out of here like we need an an escape plan just in case (laughs) and percy's basically no 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 i got this yeah he actually he completely ignores her he just talks over her (laughs) yeah and he confirms what bob is starting to suspect which is that he is a titan and that that is his brother but that bob is a a good titan and he's their friend (laughs) when he's just not like he's (laughs) percy completely forgot about him and is now just like standing there claiming to be his friend this is after this moment after bob actually kills what's growing inside the blister annabeth looks at percy and says that she can't read his expression which Mm. bothers her I, I want to figure out what's going on in Percy's head here because, you know, we've seen him do stuff like this before. But this is clearly a little bit different because if this was just us seeing Percy manipulate someone the way he tends to do, it wouldn't be shocking Annabeth because she's seen him do that before. And so it's like whatever's going on in his head has to be like slightly different. <laughs> mm. At this point, I don't think he's realized what he's doing is comparable to what Juno did to him at all. Mm -hmm. I think that to him, this is probably just like the logical way to get out of the situation. He goes to manipulation because it's something that comes naturally to him. But in Annabeth's head, watching him do it, it feels different because it has always been to just trick a monster into their own death, which was coming anyway because they're fighting them to kill them. But it hasn't come with a moral question like this, you know, man- manipulating someone into a decision while claiming to be their friend and then continuing on this journey with them. Yeah. Like, it, it crosses a line. I don't know if it crosses the line fully for Annabeth yet, but it definitely steps a little bit too close to it and Percy yeah. doesn't even realize the line is there at this point. Yeah. But yeah, this is the scene that I was talking about when uh, I think I probably brought it up during the crusty scene <laughs> back oh. in the lightning thief because it reminds me of it reminds me of that where he mm. he talks crusty into his own bed and then kills yeah. him um and then i also was referring to it during the phobos is it phobos or demos that he's fighting in the stolen chariot one of them <laughs> one of them <laughs> He fights him, and I said that it's a little bit unnerving that we get absolutely nothing of what's going through Percy's head in that part. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking of this scene also because of, you know, watching Percy do this and having no access to what's going on in his head 
and Annabeth even not being able to read his expression at the end when she's always able to read his expression. So yeah, just to clarify those earlier <laughs> references. <laughs> I assumed you were talking about a different scene because it's the only scene I I know what you I thought I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that one. Um, it's also interesting because the transition um, we get after this, um, we're in Hazel's POV. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you're bringing up all of the stuff with Percy, um, with Annabeth not being able to read Percy, because in this scene, Hazel and Jason end up having to go on their quest together, their side quest together. The whole time, Hazel's actually unnerved by Jason, not Nico. Hazel actually is the only person that is not unnerved by Nico, but she feels like she can't trust him and is really unnerved by him because she can't read him. Yeah. And also because he was basically willing to sacrifice Nico in the prior book in order to um, try and get like the best possible outcome for everyone else involved, which just doesn't sit right with her. So it's interesting that those are the two things that bother her when uh, Mr. Jackson uh, is uh, exhibiting that exact behavior for Annabeth right now. Yeah, that's funny because I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about how every time I I read a description of Jason, I tend to think about Annabeth because I feel like they're pretty similar. And they're both blonde. They're both blonde. All <laughs> blonde people are the same. So <laughs> end of thought. <laughs> Just the way that she describes Jason as being really careful here and like logical and always choosing. It seems like he's choosing every word before he says it. Mm. And like he just seems distant because of that because of like a lack of in her mind emotion and annabeth is like i feel like being extremely emotional is a a major part of her character (laughs) but to an outsider Mm. she might not present that way immediately and so i tend to think of annabeth when i think of jason but i like your analysis of this better especially because hazel says that part of the reason that she's a little bit put off by jason is that he seems like more of a legend than a person and she can't get past the legend part of him to the person part of him. Mm. So in this chapter, they are attacked by a giant turtle and ends up kind of limping the ship into this bay where they meet this man whose name is Skiron. I think Skiron. They meet this guy Skiron, who's apparently a son of Poseidon, back from the dead, as we have seen happening a lot, um, who in mythology was somebody Theseus ran into as part of his travels. And Hazel's kind of in the mindset of uh, needing to practice using the mist when uh, basically they're threatened to give up all of their valuables um, because he's a pirate and they have to go up to this hill um, and they give up all their valuables or he will kill all of them. And he's a very good shot. So they have no choice but to go. So Hazel goes thinking she can just summon wealth and they'll be fine. And then Jason goes to kind of be back up in a safety line on the climb. But what ends up happening is, of course, they're not able to get around it because Skiran wants the Athena Parthenos, which is a non-negotiable. They cannot give up that particular rich. So he sort of sets up his classic bit, I guess, which is like, you need to wash my feet. And then they'll, he kicks them off while um, that happens. But um, this is where Hazel really starts to take to heart the idea that she needs to learn how to use the mist. And as she's sort of trying to figure out how to play this, she goes through a lot of the same struggles we saw Percy go through in the staff of Hermes and is having a hard time until she has this observation that I kind of just was floored by because I thought this paragraph was so good because she basically starts thinking about 
herself and her own powers and her experiences trying to figure this all out. And she says, She'd spent decades with the dead, lamenting past lives that were only half remembered, distorted by nostalgia. The dead saw what they believed they would see. So did the living. Pluto was the god of the underworld, the god of wealth. Maybe those two spheres of influence were more connected than Hazel had realized. There wasn't much difference between longing and greed. If she could summon gold and diamonds, why not summon another kind of treasure? A vision of the world that people wanted to see. And it's through connecting the idea of giving people what they want to see and her own godly powers that she's able to unlock using the myth. Um, and, and actually, she and Piper have a conversation about this in a later chapter where Piper has the realization too of, oh, maybe I've when I charm speak people, I have a harder time because I'm trying to get them to do things that they don't want to do. And that led me to thinking as well how they connect over that with Piper's charm speaking versus Hazel finding this way into the mist powers through her connection with um, Pluto. And also how when we saw in the past Thalia use the mist, she kind of seems to have found her way through it through like the wind. I wonder if what's going on with a lot of the mist powers is that connection. And that's kind of the key is like finding your way into manipulating the world around you through what you have already but also doing it in a way where you're kind of giving fully in to what the person you're trying to manipulate desires. And what's wild is is this actually connects to what we were talking about in the Staff of Hermes, (laughs) because we were talking about the similarities between Grover using Apollo's lyre and Percy trying to use the mist, and that Grover was sort of trying to picture in his mind, like what, trying to summon basically things he wanted to summon. Likewise, Percy was kind of trying to do the same thing. There's sort of two halves to this quote from Hazel. Part of it is explaining how the mist works and how she's able to reason her way into it through using her powers. But I also found that first part pretty mind-blowing of just like how much our own perceptions of what our lives have been like and what who we were are, as she says, distorted by nostalgia. Um, and how much people, living or dead, are only wanting to see what, what they want to see. And just like that connection. And I also think desire is sort of the big theme of this book for me Hmm. because you see all of these characters sort of struggling with different manifestations of it not necessarily in things they want but a lot of them get in a way what they want in this story to good or bad effect or a lot of them have to deal with and wrestle with what they want and uh i also think it's not an accident that this is where this is the book where we finally get to meet cupid And he is what he is. I really like that as a theme for this book and what everyone in this book wants. Because that definitely is a part of at least like Percy, Jason, Nico. Oh, the big three kids. I also think it plays into Hazel just in terms of learning to manipulate it. Yes, it starts with Hazel. And also a little bit, I think with Frank, specifically, I'm thinking about the warring gods in his head and like what they want for him. Also with Leo. Oh, I completely forgot that Leo existed. You're right. It has to do with Leo. (laughs) Leo and Calypso, big, big one right there. Yeah, I will be keeping that in mind as we keep going as a theme to watch out for, because I feel like that's uh, better than the themes I've got in mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can have many themes. Sure, but one will always be better than the other. (laughs) How am I going to win now? (laughs) Well, you bitch slapped me so hard with the Labyrinth episode, I'm still recovering, so... (laughs) The way I read this chapter was 
focused more on I said Skyron because at one point someone made a Chiron joke. I was focused more on him as like another child of Poseidon, as you put it, behaving badly. It was, I think the reason I was focused on it, especially, was because I couldn't believe that I had only just thought of like, I'm always wishing that there were more demigod children of Poseidon so that I could look at them and figure out what's a Poseidon trait that Mm -hmm. Percy's inherited and what's just Percy. Mm -hmm. And I have never somehow thought to look at like the villains that they face i'm always just like it's too bad percy doesn't have a sibling at camp jupiter or camp half flood that we can compare him to we only have tyson but i i do think if you take percy Antaeus, skyron polyphemus yeah chris they are oh yeah they've all got the trickery mm-hmm um, and then Hazel, as I was having this thought, Hazel had the line where she was saying, Percy was a child of Poseidon's better nature, powerful but gentle and helpful, the kind of sea that sped ships safely to distant islands. Skyron was a child of Poseidon's other side, the kind of sea that battered relentlessly at the coastline until it crumbled away or carried the innocents from shore and let them drown or smash ships and killed entire crews without mercy. Bringing up that idea of who Percy is, while Percy's on this journey, especially like between the two scenes that this chunk mm-hmm. of chapters is sh- shoved in between, it just felt like you can't read that line and be like, you're so right, Hazel. <laughs> Percy would never drown anyone on purpose. No. <laughs> it just the fact that we're coming off of the scene where we watched Percy manipulate this guy into killing his own brother, and then after it, we're going to get the awry. It felt like it was almost strategically placed there so that you would be like, um, (laughs) because it's true that Percy is powerful, but gentle and helpful most of the time. Mm -hmm. It just depends on who you are. Sometimes he can be the other, the other guy. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of, um. Right. It's the Arai time. Yeah. So they're going through Tartarus and they get descended on by the Arai. They're spirits of curses, um, which I love. Culturally speaking, curses are actually a pretty big deal in both ancient Greece and Rome. Like we recover tons of these things called curse tablets, which are basically like these lead sheets of paper where people carve curses into them (laughs) and like stuff them in jars. And there's a lot of, you know, people just love cursing people, you know, in the ancient world. It was kind of interesting because I was looking them up and it seems like most of their mentions are actually in Greek plays. So not super into like Hmm. mythology. So it seems like it was a lot more of a like colloquial, like day-to-day type creature than, um, you know, a mythic one. Um, But so I I enjoy that as their presence. They're a bit more of like a piece of like ancient culture than like a story. Hmm. But fun fun thing about these guys is if you kill one then you unleash a curse that has been given onto you um and the first one percy kills he finds this out because he gets stabbed through the chest um in the same way he killed garyon this combined with bob means percy is being literally confronted with those he's stolen the lives of yep it's really just i i feel like this first or even most of this book, but especially the first half of it, is Percy having to face the fact that the suffering he's caused is still suffering, mm-hmm. <laughs> even if it was inflicted on an enemy, and just having to face the wreckage that's like left behind him. And again, mm-hmm. like after having Hazel describe Percy as gentle, it's like all of that violence catches up to him immediately after. Yeah. And not just like physical violence, it's also not 
uh, sparing Bob or Calypso a thought since leaving them behind and lying to Bob catches up with him. Because this is the scene where Bob realizes that Percy mm-hmm. took his memories. Yeah, and I think when I... Watching Percy get confronted with all of this, and especially with Bob, this is when I sort of realized that I felt like his arc in a lot of ways. I kept thinking about how in the hero's journey, there's uh, always like the descent into the underworld. And that's kind of like the main impetus for change. It's like the sort of middle 50% usually. And, you know, he's been to the underworld a few times now. So I feel like Tartarus is kind of the real descent. Mm. And there's this thing that happens on the hero's journey because it's modeled after stories like Hercules or Dionysus, this moment that's called the apotheosis, which is a Greek word. It means becoming a god, basically. And I just kept thinking about it because it started with just, you know, the comparison of Percy being Hera or Juno in the situation with Bob. But all of the characters here being people who were once mortal, who are now divine in some ways or immortal, not just in this book, but In this whole series, it made me think a lot about how Percy is now being confronted with all of the callousness and ways in which he has acted just like the gods. And how I wonder, it made me think about how you can see how if he continues down these paths and continues to be like this, he could become like Hercules, specifically the version of Hercules we met in the last book and how that pathway has already started for him. Because, again, he completely forgot about Calypso. He completely forgot about Bob. All of these promises he made and how much he's hurting people and how much he doesn't realize he's hurting people or doesn't care or actively leans into it and keeps going with it. So I'm calling Percy's arc here. I've I've been calling in my notes Percy's arc here the apotheosis of Percy because I think Hmm. this more than anything is him getting on that path. Hmm. So Jason has a dream, right, of um, the Camp Jupiter uh, planning, people planning to attack Camp Half-Blood. And uh, Rachel Dare and Grover deliver Annabeth's note from Tartarus to Reyna, telling her that Reyna needs to be the one to bring the Athena Parthenos back to Camp Half-Blood to reunite the two factions. And um, she says she's going to meet up with them, and Jason wakes up, and he knows immediately where to go. Number one, the place that he and Reyna always talked about wanting to visit in the old world. So he knows that that's the first place she'll look. Number two, they also can get um, the Scepter of Diocletian, which will summon them a ghost army. And I did think it was interesting, the Jason talking about how much he and Reyna idolized Diocletian. It has the funniest line. <laughs> which part? He's like, yeah, he like killed a lot of christians but he otherwise he was a pretty good ruler (laughs) i was like jason (laughs) yeah okay so diocletian's an interesting character was he pretty good emperor all things considered yeah did he have a lot of christians murdered for political reasons also yes is it really if you think about it ethical to be the emperor of rome no (laughs) he was the last kind of great pagan emperor that's sort of what he's known for he actually ended up retiring as emperor, which is pretty rare. Um, and he built this huge palace and split Diocletian's palace um, to retire too. Which, for those who are wondering, it's not actually like an archaeological site with tickets. It's basically just like downtown split. It was actually expanded by the Venetians a little bit. So you can like directly compare like Venetian and Roman 
uh, stone masonry, um, which maybe only I think is cool. But I do find it really interesting that Jason and Reyna idolize Diocletian so much. Because I think he, Jason mentions it's because he has this, these humble origins, but he also mentions it's because he peacefully retired. Which is something, again, you don't really see a lot of in demigod culture, although you see it a lot more in New Rome. Yeah. I, this connects to sort of what Jason uh, talks about also at the, in the same kind of internal monologue. Because it makes him feel a little bit less stereotypically Roman. And he keeps catching himself thinking about how to bring more Greek influence into the way that Camp Jupiter is run and how much he wants to change things and how like when he was younger he came into Camp Jupiter wanting to change things and to try to make Camp Jupiter something more but eventually let himself fall into tradition and mm. now he's thinking again about like the way he used to want things to be which is going to be a major part of what Jason goes through in this story and so I like that we're starting off Jason's point of view chapter with that. Um, it's also around here that we get I feel like the second half of the Percy and Jason memory puzzle, because Jason says that when he looks back on his past at Camp Jupiter, it feels like almost like a movie that he acted in a hundred years ago. Like it's something mm. that was completely made up while Percy's past clearly feels very real. Yeah. Which it's interesting because I feel like with Bob, he and Jason have a lot in common and the way they view their past lives and the way yeah. their memories come back. Yeah, because Bob later in the book like has this moment where he's talking to Percy, where Percy is telling him like, yes, that all happened and you can look back at it and choose what is there that you want to take from it. Is it Percy that says that or is it Annabeth? I think it's Percy. I think it's Percy. Because Bob keeps looking back on it and being like, I don't know what what to do with all of these memories because they're slowly coming back to him and they feel like they're his but they almost don't feel real in the same way that jason's mm -hmm. don't yeah they uh find a secret tunnel jason leaves a clue for reyna <laughs> and then breaks the bust that he hid it under <laughs> yeah. but it's okay because uh they meet zephyr the west wind who airlifts them away from diocletian's palace to salona which is a Roman town that's just outside Split. And uh, poor Nico is terrified of Cupid because that's who they meet there. Because as it turns out, this area used to sort of be Cupid's domain before the Romans built a lot of stuff, before Diocletian kind of moved in and made it a hub. And Zephyr um, in the Cupid, I, I think I even mentioned this at one point, Zephyr the West Wind um, it brings Psyche to Cupid in the Cupid and Psyche story. Yeah. I was curious what you thought of this uh, depiction of Cupid, because I know you have done a lot of thinking about um, that man. Yeah, I have. <laughs> For those who don't know, Emily wrote a, a whole musical <laughs> that involves about that man. Cupid and Psyche. I think it's a really interesting depiction. I really like it, actually. I mean, as you probably could have guessed by, you know, you've seen the musical. I love more monstrous takes on Cupid in general. I love more morally gray takes on Cupid. I mean, there's not a single happy story that involves this guy except for Cupid and Psyche, and he's the worst in it. <laughs> I love Cupid as being something people are afraid of because people are afraid of having to confront their own desires. People are afraid of having to admit things to themselves that they'd maybe rather not admit. People are afraid implicitly of gaining that understanding of themselves that they're maybe not ready for. And I'm saying people, what I mean is Nico. 
I don't feel like we need to explain what happens in this scene. I think everyone knows. <laughs> He's gay! <laughs> That's it. That's what we find out. This was such a moment. This is the scene that leaked in Portuguese first, just so everyone knows. This was wild. I remember seeing this on my Tumblr feed, by the way. This is the only, like, piece of Percy Jackson fandom, like, craziness that I've ever, like, been privy to. Because it got that big. It was such a moment. I remember I thought it was, like, in Latin at first, and that, that was why I looked at it. I was like, wait, is this in Latin? It was Portuguese, and I, I didn't believe it at first, so I did go into the leak and try to read it myself using my knowledge of Spanish. And I was like, that is what that says, according to how I'm translating this. <laughs> I think the moment that I like that this kind of colors is the last Olympian stuff. Because I feel like those scenes where he's like kind of trying to walk the line between saving Percy and learning more about his mom are especially fun to look back at with this knowledge because he is like really trying like really hard to make sure that Percy's safe in those scenes and is so upset <laughs> when Percy doesn't want anything to do with him afterward yeah. because uh, Nico quote unquote betrayed him. And that's actually, that's how we start this too because Jason doesn't like trust Nico because he says Percy told him about how Nico like betrayed yeah. him in the last Olympian. And I was like, <laughs> Percy, why are you doing that? Are you just going around telling people this? Poor this Nico. Is the thing, though, is that I think that Jason is a little bit like Annabeth, where he kind of makes quick judgments about people, but in his mind, it's like purely logic based because he says something similar about Hazel at the beginning of this part. He says that he feels nervous around Hazel specifically because of what she what she just did um, with the mist, and it's like that's his friend. But he's still now nervous around Hazel because he knows, like, yes, this is my friend, mm. but she can do something very dangerous. And so he knows, like, to put her in the, like, be wary of category. And so he's kind of done the same thing with Nico. No matter how, I know that some people worry that this is, like, Percy describing Nico badly, but I almost feel like Percy just probably told this story and Jason took from it, like, okay, be wary of Nico. Got it. <laughs> because that's just kind of what jason does i'm trying to think like when would percy have told jason this story like before or after they're gonna have to go rescue nico i'm assuming it was while they were on their way to go rescue nico i'm assuming that it was like a percy jason like tell me about this kid who we're on our way to save and percy like telling stories about nico which like definitely not the one to tell him i know oh my god <laughs> but um back to nico <laughs> Yeah. I like that this confirms for me something about Nico that I, I, it almost doesn't confirm this completely, but I am taking it as confirmation of something that I used to get into arguments with people about on Tumblr. Um, because I said, I used to, I used to say that Nico was an extrovert and the MBTI girls uh, hated me for it because I think that Nico is someone who thrives off of being around people and like does at his core want to want people close but he's cut himself off from that want and like I just think that that yearning is something that is core to Nico is and it's something that he has been denying himself for years at this point I think that we see him kind of light up when he's around other people and just based on the Nico that we first met, like back in the Titan's Curse, like that's that's who he was and who he still is. Mm -hmm. And I think that this chapter 
proves a, a, a piece of that because we know now that he has, has really been denying himself that. I think there's also something about desire being something that is dangerous in addition to something that's good. I, I do enjoy that in this version as well, like Cupid acknowledges like Thanatosis's counterpart and like there's all of this, again, like that, that what I was talking about, about death and desire kind of being intertwined. Mm-hmm. So all of that to say, like that combo of like death and desire and moving through the underworld also got me thinking about like how that manifests specifically in Percy, because I think we're starting to see the side of him that is kind of giving into a specific desire of his that may or may not be his fatal flaw. <laughs> that is coming up in several chapters. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of our faves. Um, right. Percy's dying. <laughs> <laughs> This on the reread, I think, is my favorite scene in this book. Oh. So they encounter this, like, friendly giant who, as it turns out, is the counterpart to Ares. So being the opposite of Ares, he's not warlike at all. He's actually quite peaceful. And he's sort of cursed with this repetitive task of killing the same dragon every day because he did so once upon a time back in his homeland of Turkey. And Bob brings Percy and Annabeth there because uh, this giant is the only person that may be able to heal Percy. And first, Annabeth uh, sort of perceives him a little bit by attempting to basically appeal to his pride to goad him into healing Percy. Basically, like, I don't believe you have the power to do this. At the end of everything, though, Damison says, oh, I want payment from you. And Annabeth's already for a monstrous encounter type payment. And instead he says, I just want a story. Tell me about, tell me your story. And there's just something about this scene in which Annabeth is sitting around a campfire sharing a meal with a titan and a giant telling her story because the thing is there's a greek value called xenia where it's basically this idea of like being a good host so it's a big thing in the iliad and the odyssey um and a big cultural piece of being greek because it's you know there's a lot people traveled around a lot there's a lot of different island hopping there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of like where you're gonna next you know end up and so this idea that like you have to be a good host and there's certain specific guest rules and guest rights and everything that you go through as a society is like a really big piece of it and a big, a big piece of what made them feel specifically like they were Greek as opposed to, you know, from a specific place, a specific city. It's like a cultural tie that um, they all share. And in this situation, it's Annabeth who's in the foreign land and being hosted and as payment telling her story. And it's something you see all the time in the Iliad in an interesting way that I think I brought up in our last Olympian episode, where it's like even foes, often if they're evenly matched, will throw down their arms in the Iliad and say, I will host you when you come to my land and you will host me when I come to your land. And that's like a pact they make. And that's how like the friendship, a friendship is born. And so all of this coming together in Tartarus, I just found to be such a cool moment. Mm-hmm. The fact that also Annabeth's telling their story, because as you know, we've talked about a lot, stories are kind of a big deal. And even later in this segment, we talk about it a bit more. Yeah, because we've talked a little bit about how Annabeth thinks of telling her story. And it's mainly as a part of legacy rather than the actual act of telling her story. It's more like what she's going to leave behind. Not like it's not present tense. It's mm -hmm. future tense. Like, she really isn't expecting to ever have to tell her own story. She's expecting to leave something behind that will tell her story for her. So having this moment where Annabeth has to actually sit down and tell her story is neat, I think. Um, and I think there's also an element here of, you know, I, I don't think this is something that Annabeth is actually thinking about, but I think it's still there. 
of these are two immortals that she's telling her story to who don't have to worry about things like legacy because they are eternal but because they're immortal in a way if you tell them your story it's going to live forever with them but that's not really where annabeth's story is coming from here instead she's she's telling it out of comfort really the moment that stuck with me it comes from the scene immediately after this which is annabeth goes to sleep and when she wakes up bob and damison are talking and we get to hear like a conversation between a titan and a giant and they just end up having like a philosophical <laughs> conversation with like bob being like do you like your fate and damison being like oh well does anyone like his fate <laughs> but the line i wrote down is after annabeth finally gets up and she's telling damison that she thinks that he is a part of the prophecy that he needs to come with them and that he's the only way that they're going to make it through the doors of death. Damison, you know, he he can't leave the swamp. This is his curse. This is his fate. Uh, and he says there's no escape from it. And Annabeth says that he can't escape it. Don't fight the dragon. Figure out a way to break the cycle. Find another fate. Which, <laughs> to me, that line is a huge theme for like... I, I feel like it's the theme of the entire... All, all of these series is the idea of like breaking the cycle. But I mean, in this book alone, Jason is getting his own version of this with thinking of how he can make Rome better rather than continuing in, in tradition's footsteps. And Annabeth is offering Damison this. And I just, I feel like this entire three series book series is full of cycles and of stories repeating themselves. And so having a character actually say this part out loud to break the cycle finally is actually mm. really impactful especially after this conversation like it's the fact that it's two immortals who are still stuck it just makes you want to break out even more to know that there's someone who lives forever who's also stuck in place yeah then we come to a scene with piper and hazel talking about the mist i feel like in this scene I feel like a, a piece of a lot of what all these characters are going through is like unlocking new levels and depths to a lot of their powers. So we see that with Frank, with really understanding and uh, really channeling and really understanding and deepening his uh, abilities as a child of Ares. We see that with Hazel learning about the mist and connecting it to her own powers. We see that <laughs> with Percy a little later. Um, <laughs> We see with Annabeth having only to rely on her wits um, a little bit, she has to kind of expand that aspect of herself. I'm missing Leo and Jason. Jason, Jason will have his breakthrough moment, but I don't think it's... Uh, it's like sort of power related. Leo's the only one that I don't know if he's... But um, I think in this scene, we also see Piper do that a little bit, where she really starts to through talking with Hazel about this stuff, understand charm speaking a little bit more and how best to use it. And she's actually able to um, use not just like charm speaking, like persuasion, but weaponize her own like feelings of love in order to wake up Festus. Like when she actually succeeds is when she concentrates on how much she loves this dragon. And that is what wakes him up. Mm -hmm. The notes that I took on this scene aren't huge. One of them was that it's here in, in these chapters that we get Piper just deciding that the prophecy actually means that either Jason or Leo will die, which the prophecy just doesn't say. But we need stakes. But it's we need fine. some more stakes here. I think that this is a hint that uh, Rick's plan for the series is changing at this point, mm. and that what he originally wanted 
the prophecy to mean it's not what it's going to mean anymore. But that's just me tin hatting. I think what's also funny about the way that Piper gets out of this situation is that she she talks her way out, which like that's kind of her her thing. She talks her way out, but she talks her way out by basically just willing things to happen around her. It's not like a manipulation. Mm. It's more of a just she says things and makes them happen. <laughs> and she admits that the talking her way out of things in a in a more manipulative sense is not her kind of thing. She calls it the the trick manipulate delay attack method. She calls it mm. an Annabeth thing. It's really just an original series thing. Mm. And like I pointed out, <laughs> the Lost Hero trio, it doesn't come naturally to them. Um, but that was the only note that I made on this chapter because I knew that the misery scene was coming next. <laughs> and so I was like yeah. zooming through it. <laughs> Sorry, Piper. I love you, but I mean, the scene is coming. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so for context, when I first uh, read the Hero of the Limbus series, Phoebe lent me a whole stack of her books. And the one thing she said to me was, when you're reading House of Hades, you need to text me when you get to the scene, capital T, capital S. And I was like, the scene? And she goes, yes, there's a scene in this book that's utterly wild, and I need to know your reaction to it immediately when you get to it. That is all I ask. And I was like, how will I know when I get to the scene? And she said, you will know. And I'm reading House of Hades. And I, I think texted her one, one or two times. Um, I think I got to the scene. To which she said both times, <laughs> if you think you got to it, you didn't get to it. <laughs> you will know when you get to it. <laughs> it won't be a question. And then I got to this scene and I was like, yep, that's it. And I texted Phoebe. <laughs> Can you uh, walk us through your first reaction to this scene, Phoebe? <laughs> well, actually, this is the second scene that leaked in Portuguese. <laughs> oh, no. Um, but I couldn't believe my eyes. <laughs> it just feels so... People were, like, really upset about this scene. People felt like it was out of character, like it was it was too far. People were trying to justify it, saying, like, oh, well, he's in survival mode, like, he can't... Like, this isn't, this isn't Percy, this isn't him. And I was like, it is him, and I have evidence. <laughs> this has been building up for books. Mm -hmm. But we get to see Percy finally crack literally that's what how he describes it he describes what happens in this scene as a crystal ball shattering in his stomach yeah it's so good i love this scene. <laughs> um so for those who may not remember this scene they've been led by bob to have to find the lady of the death mist to cloak themselves in order to pass through with the rest of tartarus 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 relatively um unscathed unsensed by monsters so they have to go and they meet Aklis the goddess of misery first interesting detail is that she's carrying the shield of heracles uh, the shield apparently came down to tartarus when heracles as mortal body burned because he would have been burned presumably on top of the shield which i just thought was interesting because it's like came down to tartarus like a monster so it's like almost like his shield has a life of its own which makes sense because there's an entire epic poem about it and again it's all about those connections right between immortality monsterhood and how that all works in the world building that always intrigues me and we've talked a little bit about it with Daedalus, but I think Hercules is a really interesting uh, person to examine in terms of this relationship because, you know, he's been immortal and then he was raised to being a god, but also he's got a shield apparently that is a thing that went to Tartarus when it was destroyed. I again, implying that it's like monstrous in nature. And it just made me think about like how blurry all of the lines between those three things, those three things are mm -hmm. specifically in this book which I think it's been building up to for a really, the whole series has been building up to for a while. 
Mm. And specifically also thinking about that in relation to, as I've been calling it, the apotheosis of Percy in this book. So, um, Atlas, of course, instantly betrays them. And uh, do do you want to describe what happens next? Yeah, so (laughs) they end up trying to fight Atlas, but they can't touch her because they are now made of mist. But she can touch them. And so Percy and Annabeth at first try to just, like, anger her and, like, stall and try to figure out a way to beat her. So Atlas starts sending... She's also the goddess of poison, or at least poison is her thing. And so she mm-hmm. sends waves of poison across the across the ground toward Percy, who, while choking on it, he, he puts it together in his head that if the poison is a liquid, it must be partially water, and so maybe he'll be able to control it. And so he starts sending the poison back toward Aklis. The fumes start getting to her, she starts crying, Percy thinks, good, more water. And <laughs> starts drowning her with her own tears, choking her with her own tears, and just keeps pushing it. Like he he keeps pushing it. <laughs> he he's pushing it and pushing it. Notices Annabeth is scared of him, right? And still doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. When Annabeth asks Percy to stop, he he thinks to himself, he doesn't. He didn't want to stop. He wanted to choke this goddess. He wanted to watch her drown in her own poison. He wanted to see just how much misery misery could take. And it's only when he looks back at Annabeth and sees just how upset that she is that he he starts to feel like the anger that's built up in him throughout this scene fade, and he yells at Atlas to leave, and she runs. Insane. (laughs) (laughs) Um, After this, uh, while he's talking to Annabeth, she tells him, some things aren't meant to be controlled. And it says his whole body tingled with power, but the anger was subsiding. The broken glass inside him was beginning to smooth at the edges. But it's still broken. (laughs) It's not piecing itself back together. I just want to point that out. (laughs) Yeah, so that's that scene. Um, (laughs) Oh, there's so much. There's so much I could say about this. For one thing, it's Percy's never really seemed to have any kind of limit to his powers. He's always, you know... He feels that tug in his gut and then is able to basically do anything he sets his mind to. And here he seems to have reached not a limit, but like a threshold. That's where the glass was. He broke through the glass and has done something irreversible to himself here. Because at the end of this, like every other scene where he's pushed himself this far, he comes out of it feeling exhausted. But here he is not tired at all. Um, Mm -hmm. And doesn't even seem to register immediately after just how scary what he did was. But the larger thought I have about this is this to me feels like it's also a threshold within Percy's arc in this series. It's a turning point. It's the point of no return. And even more than that, it's like where we're going to leave him for a long time. If you haven't read Blood of Olympus, you will know what I mean (laughs) when we read Blood of Olympus. But that feeling. And where he's at right now in this book, we're reaching the end of the story for him here um, until Chalice of the Gods comes out. Like, this is reaching the end of his arc. And I think that arc in this series was one of Percy realizing where the gods have failed him in, like, Son of Neptune and Mark of Athena, and then seeing the promises that they haven't kept and, like, trying to wrestle with that feeling of abandonment and anger 
and just trying to understand what to do with all of it. And then here it it bubbles over and he, you know, grabs a hold of all of it and directs it at just the concept of misery. Because I, misery has been a part of his life since before we even knew him. And the majority of it was caused by the gods, either purposefully or through negligence. And so torturing a god here, specifically the one that represents misery, like that's, that's what he does here. He tortures her. And it's one of a couple times he's managed to overpower the gods in a fight, but here it's like personal. Like he, he overpowers her and then keeps hurting her just because he can and because it feels good to wield that much control over the gods for a moment. I think this is also kind of the, the final form of Percy in his desire for power, because this is where he's finally able to take back his abilities with water. This is where he's finally able to set aside all of that anxiety and just lean into the power, lean into not thinking about water and rules and, you know, if I if he can do it or like that he probably won't be able to do it, but just thinking like, that's liquid, this will work. Mm-hmm. I need to do this. I want to do this. And not stopping himself, giving into that desire for him. Yeah, he's lost in that fatal flaw that we assigned him because he's got control now, more control than he's ever had before over his powers and over a god. And so here he's focusing all of that wrath with none of the self-regulation that should be telling him to stop. And I think it's just in following Percy in his relationship with the gods, it it could only have ever developed in one of two ways. Like either he was going to make peace with them and learn to respect them and you know, like become more like Jason. Like Jason's a good example of that, I think. Yeah, I think one of his, um, when he's thinking about if he wants to go back to Camp Half-Blood or Camp Jupiter, one of the like big turning points is he says he feels like if he's at Camp Half-Blood, he'll have a better chance of meeting his dad. Mm-hmm. And Percy could have been that. Like that was one option. And I think it's also an option that it, that like Annabeth sort of leans into more. But he can also go with the other option, which is learning what the root of his anger is and beginning to understand what happened to Luke and like all of the things that he lost when he won the war in the last series. And that's the path that he's taken here. And in this scene, because he has that fatal flaw of, you know, despite wanting control like this, having very little control over himself, all of that anger manifests in this really cruel and focused act of violence against a god. I also think it's absolutely wild of Rick, by the way, that the scene that comes next is Calypso. (laughs) (laughs) This is really the epic highs and lows of high school football, is going from this scene to the Leo Calypso scene. (laughs) I think I mentioned at one point, like, one of the themes of one of the first books was like heroes and the people they leave behind and i feel like we're getting so much of that too with percy specifically she her anger too how angry she is which we've gotten a hint of actually in the ri scene yeah just how angry she is of being abandoned and how he completely forgot about her we all did maybe some of us (laughs) as a calypso fan (laughs) i would never i am not a a huge fan of this these chapters i'll be honest it worked better honestly this time around for me okay <laughs> i didn't think it was really interesting that we got to focus on it. we calypso got to be angry in this so i liked seeing that and i liked her getting that opportunity and i i think the one thing that did stick with me a little bit was this is why it kind of worked for me better this time around was i feel like 
Leo does do something for her. Well, that's not really for her, actually. But Leo does do something that no one else has done, which is give her a brief glimpse into the outside world. Because he's basically able to bring up this giant bronze mirror. Now, I, I said for her and then corrected myself because it's not for her. He's trying to figure out what's going on with his friends. I, I do think that that particular moment is important. Because that is something she's, as far as we know, never gotten to see before. And I do think the fact that Leo is actually thinking about coming back for her to free her at the end of this. Like, Percy isn't thinking that when he leaves her island. No, but he did have the gods promise to free her. So he was thinking of her. And he did ask that of the gods. But he didn't check back up on her. I mean, he he did disappear a month after making that request. That, that's fair. That's so, fair. Okay. <laughs> I really don't think we can blame Percy here. I want to, though, and the narrative wants to. Okay. I know the narrative wants to. I heard it loud and clear. <laughs> but Percy shouldn't feel too guilty about that one. He should feel guilty about Bob. Calypso, he couldn't really do anything about that. I think that the realization when Percy eventually hears about Calypso... I mean, I don't, I don't remember Blood of Olympus very well, so I can say this as if I'm just a uh, conjecture. <laughs> when Percy eventually finds out that Calypso was not freed, I imagine that that will be just another, like, because we've talked about how Son of Neptune, Percy was realizing over the course of it that the gods hadn't really kept their promises to him and were acting just as badly. And the Calypso realization seems like something that should be a part of that, is that, like, that was a specific request that he made and the that has been ignored mm. anyway <laughs> i'm not a fan of the scene because i don't think calypso acted like that in the, when i first met her this feels like totally changing her personality so that she will fit with leo and also calypso and leo never should have ended up together it it, it's, it halts leo's development for me because mm. he needed to realize that it was okay for him to be on his own and uh, that he wasn't a seventh wheel. He was loved by all of his friends. And instead, he just uh, got a girlfriend. And that's the end of that. <laughs> mm. um, so he just, he goes through that whole, like, feeling all alone story. Yeah. And, like, it getting worse, like we talked about, that he, over the course of the series, started to feel worse and worse about himself being alone and then he just they just uh throw a girlfriend at him and it fixes everything <laughs> mm -hmm. and also calypso should have just learned to love herself and the raft should have shown up for her Aww. <laughs> well <laughs> it's fine the series the book needed something wrong with it so <laughs> cool so back to tartarus um... anyway well nix shows up and She's terrifying. And Annabeth looks over at Percy and realizes we are seeing the return of that panic that we talked about in the last couple books, but mm. especially the last book, um, because Nick summons her children and Annabeth yeah. hears Percy's breathing turn shallow and can tell just from looking at him that she's going to have to carry them both through this scene. And so gets to, to tricking her way through it. <laughs> where she pretends that they're like on a tour of Tartarus. Yeah. I find this scene so funny um, because it could just be, it could be horror, but considering the scene that we just had with Percy and Misery, I like that this is almost pure yeah. comedy. Yeah, it's great. I think it's also, it feels emblematic of like, you know, that line about how a lot of the true horrors of Tartarus are kind of obscured for them. And I feel like they're just kind of tap dancing around that right now, which is great. Mm-hmm. 
And I do enjoy them, like, being in Tartarus and not taking it too seriously. Like, it feels almost like this is what they should have been doing the whole time. (laughs) Again, I think there's something about the mist and the desire and the themes here. It's, like, all about, like, manifesting, basically, making people see what they want to see and using that to your advantage and also, like, using that to make what you want happen. I don't know if you have anything more to say about Nyx. No, I I just really enjoyed this Nyx scene. And then what I really enjoy is the House of Night scene immediately after when they can't open their eyes and are rushing through what they know is just like so terrible that they they can't look at it. And when they get to the end of it, they get to the Acheron where they hear the voices of tortured souls who Annabeth says that are, are mainly murderers. And then they, the river wails, murderers, yes, like you, join us, you are no better than we are. And then Annabeth's head is flooded with images of all the monsters that she's killed. And then it starts to turn into visions of, like, Zoe Nightshade dying because she died while trying to save Annabeth. And Bianca, who also died on the same quest. And Michael Yube, return of Michael Yube. <laughs> Finally. Finally. Justice. <laughs> and Selena. Um, and then we get Luke, which the river says, his blood is on your hands. There should have been another way. You murdered him. Jump in and share his punishment. Which that last line is like, mm, is he in there? <laughs> he must be. He's a murderer. Wild. He wanted to be reborn as a hero. He was like, I'm going to try for rebirth three times. I'm going to end up in Elysium. Just watch me. And then <laughs> wakes up down here. Like, bold of you to assume you're, you know. They'll just forgive you for all of that, I'm sure. <laughs> but Percy also hears these voices in his head and tells Annabeth that they will have to jump across the river. D- despite him sensing that it's 20 feet across, Annabeth argues, but Percy says to trust him. And so Annabeth puts her arms around Percy and then has no idea what happens next. And it drives me crazy. <laughs> um, I have a fun theory. Okay. We have accounts of the ancient Olympics and people exaggerate things in this, like, you know, the great deeds of athletes or whatever. And for the longest time, there was a huge historical puzzle because one of the events was like a long jump. And they would always see depictions of people doing the long jump with, like, weights in their hands. And they would, like, read in the accounts these stories of, like, oh, man, and then this athlete's long jump was 50 feet. (laughs) And historians would be like, oh, come on. Like, (laughs) if you're going to exaggerate it, make it realistic. So enduring historical mystery, and they were like, what do the weights do? Like, did it, do, did you, like, drop them mid-jump? Did it, like, make you jump farther? And, like, people were testing it out. And then somebody was like, oh, my God, they jumped more than once in a row. The weights help you keep the momentum. And that's how people can jump 50 feet. So I think Percy, like, didn't learn about that actual debunking. And was just like, the Olympians could do it. (laughs) (laughs) But then actually did it. Yeah. He manifested. Mm, Right. It's what he wanted. It was a desire. And so he was like, I've heard of the themes of this book. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't have a theory about what happened here. It's a total mystery to me. I don't think he used the water. Or maybe Percy figured he could take it. And he's manipulating the water so that it's only touching him. And he's getting across it somehow. Or he, he just really jumped. <laughs> Maybe it's like, again, I think this is thing where it's like, what is distance? What is time? What is space in Tartarus? Like, yeah. I don't know. 
this is this this one paragraph has haunted me for years. <laughs> I need to know what he did. But eventually they make it across the river and Annabeth opens her eyes and we never find out. And now we are in front of the doors of death. And we're going to switch perspectives over to Jason, who is currently visiting a wind god. The south wind specifically, which um, I also enjoyed because one of the cool things about um, actually going to Greece is there are just so many things where you hear it and you're like, oh, that's a cool story. Like, for example, oh, there's four different winds and they have four different personalities. That's fun. That's cute. And then you get to Greece. And you're like, Jesus Christ, the wind is so cold today. And everyone's like, yeah, it's coming from the north. The north wind, it blows in from the Balkans. It's really fucking cold. And then, like, the next day, the air is full of this red dust. And you're like, what gives? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the south wind. It comes from the Sahara, so it just, like, brings all this dust. And you're like, wait a minute, the winds are real? Um, so anyway, I enjoyed the fact that the South Wind was like all red dust and they're talking about being the Sahara. I also thought it weirdly made sense that this was the one that was like still in the ancient world or if like there was also like an outpost in our world because again, there's no like Sahara equivalent in America. There's like Mexico, I guess. And then he actually references having a place in Cancun, which I thought was funny. Hmm. So Jason has been meeting with this guy every day for the past couple days because their ship is broken and he needs his help fixing it and getting out of there. But the guy is is super fickle and isn't answering their requests until Jason in this scene takes charge. He he tells Jason that he can only basically grant him his help once Jason makes a choice. And we know from these chapters that Jason has been dealing with starting to feel like maybe he wants to be part of Camp Half-Blood and lean into the Greek side of things more than he does want to go back to Camp Jupiter. And so it's in this moment talking to him that Jason makes his choice and chooses Greek, basically. And we get this line from, I think at this point he's notice. you cannot control your parentage, but you can choose your legacy, which just feels like a big, I feel like that's almost a continuation of the uh, Annabeth quote that I mentioned earlier about like breaking the cycle and not letting who you were fated to be control you, mm-hmm. um, not letting the gods control you, you choosing what's left behind um, or what you mm-hmm. make of yourself. But for Jason, this is, I feel like almost every character in this book has like a growth moment or a point of no return. Mm-hmm. And this is Jason's because now he has officially sort of unlocked a piece of himself in the same way that Frank did at the begin- very beginning of the book, in the same way that Hazel is currently doing with The Mist, in the same way that Percy just did. Leo just changed too, in a different way. A lot of these have to do with powers, but Leo has changed. He just reached that point of no return. I think the only one who hasn't totally had that kind of moment is Annabeth. Yeah. But you could argue that just this entire experience is that for her, but we won't know that until we get to the next book, if that's the Mm. case. But I don't think Annabeth has like an explicit, she can't come back from this one moment in the way that every other character in this book has. But by the end of the scene, uh, Jason has taken control of the wind spirits and they are leading him and the ship out of the harbor and over to the doors of death, which he can see. He can see the the bolts of black lightning coming out Mm -hmm. of the doors of death, which only Hazel and Nico can see. And that's because he's died before, which I think is cool. (laughs) Dead man walking. Yep. It always comes back to that for Jason. (laughs) So our next scene, we finally actually get Percy having to really think about 
the parallels with Bob. They're, they're heading into like the Tartarus side of the doors encounter. And basically, there's all these monsters, and there's a button that needs to be held down for 12 minutes while the elevators move. So you need one person to fend off the monsters, one person to hold the button, minimum, in order to have either Percy or Annabeth successfully make it to the top. And what I thought was interesting is there's a line where Percy is kind of already resigned, like, it's fine, I will stay behind, Annabeth will go back. And there's a line where he says, like, he kind of, like, knew this was how this was going to end, which I thought was really interesting, because I don't think we see him think that ever. Mm. But I feel like that, in a way, explains a lot of his shift in this book, because if he feels like he's never coming back, then it makes sense just how much of himself he's willing to sacrifice and how much of his yeah. like darker self he's willing to lean into to get them to the end. Like If he thinks he doesn't have to come back from this, that kind of gives him permission to lean into all of that. Right. This is also the moment where he finally actually confronts what he did to Bob. Mm-hmm. He thinks to himself, when he woke up at the wolf house, basically, like how much he was willing to believe how little he knew of himself. Mm -hmm. And really just having a whole moment being like, I did what Hera did to me, basically. And he he even starts to shut down that thought by thinking, no, but this is different. We're the good guys. And even then he's like, no, that's not enough of an excuse. Like, that's not a reason. That's I did the same thing. And this is when he and Bob actually talk about it as well. Because Bob at this point is also again similarly to jason is embracing his new identity a lot more is enjoying his new identity a lot more because it provides him i think a lot of more freedom in a weird way mm-hmm. because of all this talk about fate and yet at the same time you know bob is also saying that changing is a mortal concept again bringing in that difference of like gods and mortals being can you change or are you stuck that you brought up in our um q a episode I think this conversation with Bob is also a part of a major theme that I found in this book, which we've already kind of circled, which is the importance of remembering and acknowledging your past despite the consequences. Mm. Because we have, you know, Percy forgetting about Bob and then trying to keep him in the dark about his past and also having to, with the awry, having to face the sort of carnage that he's left behind him annabeth having to do sort of the same thing while listening to all of the murderers convince her that she's a murderer jason struggling to connect with his past because it feels distant from him and um nico and let's let's not forget the actual main quest which is house of hades where we're we're gonna go commune with the dead we're gonna go seek out answers in the past essentially yeah so they make it all the way to the doors of death and all seems lost until Damison returns and he and Bob volunteer to stay behind. I do think the way this scene ends is really quite beautiful. <laughs> Tartarus is saying, you know, I made you basically, I will destroy you. Like I will, you won't, it's not, you will never be reborn basically. And Annabeth tells them, no, monsters are eternal and that she and Percy will tell their story and they will be remembered and return. Mm-hmm regardless of what happens because that's how this works he can't destroy them completely so long as there is a story so long as they're being talked about they can still exist yeah it feels connected to there's a moment where percy feels totally helpless after seeing all of the monsters walking toward the doors of death 
and he realizes that they are all going to live forever and that he's going to die and that it doesn't matter if he kills them because they're just going to come back. But then he thinks to himself that he's part of a legacy of heroes who have been around for centuries and that his children and their children and their children are going to continue fighting back. And so they are all part of a longer story. And so it doesn't matter whether he dies, it's going to continue on. And so that felt connected here because Annabeth specifically says that they're going to tell their children about them mm. to keep the story alive. So it just felt like generations keeping it going. Yeah. I think there's something here too about like, again, bringing it all the way back as well to that line I read from Hazel about how so many people view the past and like view the past with so much nostalgia and how their worldviews are colored by their desires and how that's what you do when you retell a story as well. Like the versions of these people in these stories that are going to be remembered are also going to reflect all of the different hands that have touched the stories like it's it's like it's like a story is like a living breathing thing and how like as soon as it exists you can't destroy it so long as someone remembers it yeah and then bob says uh tell the sun and the stars hello for me i said phoebe does this come back don't tell me is this an accident so weird it's so weird that he would write that okay um The next scene we have hazel and leo going to confront the lady of the labyrinth and the giant um which are pasiphae and Clytaeus. and in this version um pasiphae is an evil sorceress yes i'm just gonna i'm just gonna put an asterisk and as my footnote see everything i have said about medea and circe in prior episodes about the tropes of sorceress women being uh tools of misogyny and xenophobia and embodiments of everything an ancient greek person would be afraid an ancient greek man would be afraid of Mm -hmm. but um there is a really interesting line um about her bringing back the labyrinth specifically because it's not just daedalus's it's also hers like she has this sorcery and magic that she contributed to it so i just thought that was interesting because it also calls into mind like all of these things that you know in society we are told were like masterminded and created by a single man are so often not mm-hmm. you know it's just a man taking credit for a lot of other people's work typically underpaid or un- and undervalued people of a variety of typically marginalized identities and so it's kind of cool to see that acknowledgement and that explanation for like why the labyrinth is returning it's because it doesn't just belong to one person yeah and so they're able with some creative chucking of things to get the doors open get percy and annabeth out save the day katie comes and helps them slay clytaeus the giant and she also kind of hangs back and doesn't interfere for a while and she kind of explains it like oh no we're not like we're only able to like interfere once you're like got it which I guess kind of explains like the way everyone else has been, all the other gods have kind of been like doing things, but I don't know. <laughs> no excuses. And then we finish the book with uh, Reyna coming after having the journey of a lifetime of battling <laughs> it out. Poor Reyna. She just shows up. She's like, yeah, it was really- I just had the most traumatic like week of my life. Anyway. I'm very excited to talk about Reyna. <laughs> I know. I love Reyna so much. Do you have a bead for this one? I think mine is the scepter. I think it's cool. Oh, we didn't even talk about the Ghost King or Frank's promotion. Yeah, no, uh, Frank is in charge now. I love how the scepter works on Horror of Babylon rules. (laughs) What? (laughs) You know, it's supernatural. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay, my bead, I'm I'm thinking stars, like 
Mm. Say like you know, say hi to the stars for me. Yep. Well, my thing is, you you are actually thinking about what your necklace looks like, and I never do. I'm not thinking at all about what my necklace looks like. Really? Okay, maybe you just draw your necklace to, so that it looks better then. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to make Emily's necklace really ugly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Next time, we will be reading Blood of Olympus with a special guest. So, Blood of Olympus marks the end of the Heroes of Olympus series. So, we're about to have our Heroes of Olympus wrap-up, which means it's time to get those questions in. You can send those questions to monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com or DM us or reply to any post or story on our Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok, which all of those are at pjopod. And if you enjoyed today's episode or enjoy us in general, if you could rate and review us on um, wherever you are listening, it helps us out a lot. We sadly passed 69 <laughs> reviews. I know. Phoebe and I missed it. We're at 70 right now. Alas. But we hit it at one point. It existed. Get us to 420 we and we'll, we'll see that one. <laughs> okay. Bye. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.